Hi guys, it's Pop Culture Mondays on Thursdays, and I am your host, Brooke Hammerling. Pop Culture Mondays on Thursdays. Happy Thursday, everyone. It's just little old me this week. It's been a busy week. I'm just back from London, and it was a whirlwind trip. I was in London and Munich and London again. I had the pleasure, it's Thursday, so you will get to hear it today. I am going to cross-promote a podcast. I always cross-promote podcasts that my friends are on, but this one is going to be fun because I am on it. So you're going to hear me on this podcast today, but I am also, da-da-da, I am on on with Kara Swisher. And it's out uh, today. And it's a hilarious topic, because we're going to also be talking about it today here. So everyone's talking about it. It is the most popular book, I think, of all time, maybe just beneath the Bible, but certainly it's the the fastest selling memoir of all time or even nonfiction book of all time. And that is Prince Harry's book, Spare. So I am actually going to talk a little bit about it today. We talked about it in the newsletter. It is all everyone is talking about in London and New York. I think Uh, and LA and the US and the world. I think it's um, a global sensation, but for different reasons uh, in different places. Uh, So you'll listen to Kara Swisher and Naima Raza talking on On today as well. And they have amazing guests that are actually people very, very close to the royal family. Topically, I guess one of them was a very prominent communications leader for the Royals for many, many years. And another guest is a prominent writer and wrote the book on Prince Charles. So they are experts. And I just go in and sort of talk to Naima and Kara about my response to that. And more from a communications perspective, strategy perspective on what what's going to happen, what the fallout is, what they should be doing. But you can listen to that on On. I'm going to talk more about the pop culture side of things today. And there's other things that are happening. And I think all of us, I, I, by next week, I think the topic will be back to Prince Andrew, or at least in the next few weeks. Uh, but right now, everyone seems to be talking about Harry in a way I've never seen in England. People are outraged. My friends in London, just eye rolling. And apparently, Prince Harry is less popular than Prince Andrew, which is kind of shocking because Prince Andrew has done a number of pretty dreadful things, allegedly, but he has obviously been connected to the Epstein stuff for a long time now with uh, women that are not giving up their stories that they were underage and having sexual relations with the king's brother. So now we are in this thing where are we really thinking that Harry is worse than that guy? But let's get into it a bit. If you guys are here for the first time, welcome. This is a pop culture podcast around all the things you never thought you wanted to know, but secretly did, or all the things you actually do know about and secretly are ashamed of. And this week, we're not having a guest because I am just off of a plane. I am slightly jet lag. I am coming back to a rain-soaked Los Angeles. The sunshine is out, thankfully, but a lot of damage in my area, lots of mudslides lots of trees falling, lots of roofs leaking, including mine that sort of caved in as I was on my way to Europe. But we are 
sort of digging out from that. And there's a lot of pop culture stuff that's happened. Madonna announced her tour this this week. So some of you might be clamoring for tickets to her greatest hits tour. I would, I would, I will refrain on commentary on that particular topic, but I would definitely like to see people's responses to the shows once they come out. So go buy your tickets, buy your tickets, and then let me know. Have you guys read the book though? That's what I want to know. I have been listening to the Prince Harry book or listened to the Prince Harry book, which is really weird as I write about hearing him speak. It's one thing to read it and you have it in your voice, but it's another thing entirely to hear the prince himself read some of the things that he 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 has to say and my my viewpoint is and there's so many funny memes about it but my my viewpoint is like when you're in that room when you're sitting in a little studio and to record a book all the people i know that have done their own recordings of their books it takes days i mean you're sitting there and reading for hours and hours a day david you're you would be producing it you'd be sitting there listening you'd be giving feedback we need to do that again you know your voice gets hoarse you're drinking tea you're in a box for hours and hours a day you're probably wearing soft pants a term i have not realized was so popular until everybody i was with in london kept saying is it a soft pants day or a hard pants day and i was like it's never a soft pants day we're in london for the love of god put your nice clothes on but when you're with carrots Swisher and friends we are we are generally wearing soft pants so harry's going to be wearing soft pants in this room drinking his tea and reading and it's one thing to disassociate. I think you can totally disassociate when you're writing. I do so in Pop Culture Mondays. You just sort of remove yourself. But then I always read it back. I read it out loud when I before I press publish. And you realize certain things. You're like, I can't believe I actually said that. Am I going to leave that in? It becomes very – it's a – decision. You are very much in that moment because you're hearing it. You're reading it out loud to yourself. So some of the decisions that were made in this book, I could understand if he had just written it and said, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to think about it. Just hand it over to the editor and let it go. But when you're reading it back to yourself, like, I don't know about you guys, but when I get really nervous about something or stressed out, I get like my calf muscle tightens and I get like a really horrible Charlie horse. And that's how I envision him, like as he's talking about it. Kara Swisher says, I've been talking about Harry's penis too much, but it's so frequently mentioned in the book. I don't, I mean, I have to hear about his frostbitten thing and the Freudian moment where he equates the Estee Lauder cream, the smell, the reminds of his mom, and then he puts it on his todger. He's losing his virginity. There's just a lot of, of the talk. My penis was oscillating between extremely sensitive and borderline traumatized. The last place I wanted to be was Frost Nippistan. I've been trying some home remedies, including one recommended by a friend, she'd urged me to apply Elizabeth Arden cream. My mum used that on her lips. You want me to put that on my todger? It works, Harry, trust me. I found a tube, and the minute I opened it, the smell transported me through time. My penis was oscillating between extremely sensitive and borderline traumatized. The last place I wanted to be was Frost Nippistan. I'd been trying some home remedies, including one recommended by a friend. She'd urged me to apply Elizabeth Arden cream. My mum used that on her lips. You want me to put that on my todger? It works, Harry. Trust me. I found a tube, and the minute I opened it, the 
The smell transported me through time. I felt as if my mother was right there in the room. And I took a smidge and applied it down there. When you're hearing some of the stories that he's disclosing, and this is a guy who has been fighting, fighting, fighting his whole life for privacy, it's a little questionable. And interesting, if you listen to the On podcast, you'll hear that those experts say they think that it wasn't strategic on his part to give the tabloid media what they want. In fact, they think it was a naive move on his part, not realizing how these things would be taken out of context. Uh, there was a leak. There's always a leak. That's just always going to happen. To think there wouldn't be is naive. To think that people aren't going to take just fractions of what you've said out of context is naive. So it was really interesting to hear them say that. And as he's there talking about his 25 kills as he says, he's killed 25 Taliban soldiers. It's just, you know, I I know people in the military, they don't say that. They don't talk about that. I mean, maybe they do it amongst themselves in the, in the bro group and they, they high five, certainly not the people I know. But it's not just considered uncouth, as they say. It's just not... It's not something you do and it's the humanity is gone. I don't care if they're terrorists. I understand his point of him not looking at them as people, but from just the humanity side, I thought it was very, very uncomfortable. And then from the security side, you're doing this theoretically. This was all done, your documentary, the books, the whatnot, out of pure anger. This is a, an angry, angry guy, understandably, by the way, but the last straw being that the family not providing security for him and his family after all of the security risks that they were living through. And, you know, whether it was because of race and whatnot, whether it was just a whole number of things, they definitely needed security. So I just find it strange that you poke that bear. Of all the bears to poke, you're going to now like unlock this fatwa against you. So I'm just thinking back into those days of Salman Rushdie. I mean, Salman Rushdie had a fatwa against him, I think it was like 20 years ago, and he had to go live on the sort of secretly and hidden and whatnot. And then he got over it. People got over it. He's living his life. And 20 some years later, maybe even more, 30 years later, he is attacked this past summer at a uh, festival book reading in Chautauqua, New York. And I think he's lost an eye and he was very gravely wounded. And these, these are things that were carried over because of his book, Satanic Verses, that the, I believe, Muslim fanatics, people who are really obsessively fanatical, found offensive. So here we are, a, a prince, fast forward to 2023, a man who has made his whole reason for doing this about the security of his family, coming out and saying stuff that would put his family at risk in a, in a different way than has been historically. I just find it all very strange. So that's the negative. I'm going to talk about something that I haven't really gotten into, and that's the personal connection that I really do, the personal connection I really do feel for Harry. And I, I've mentioned it, but grief is a hell of a drug, guys. And losing a parent, the person that was your safety net, your person that was your connection to normalcy is so much so like Diana was for, for Harry. But when you lose a parent, when you lose something, when your first experience with death at a young age, it, it changes your brain. And my 
mother died about two months before Diana did. And my father died a couple months after. And I wasn't 12, but I was 22. And I was a young 22. I was a very sheltered, very, you know, very young 22. Not to say that I wasn't uh, worldly and I hadn't traveled and I hadn't had these amazing experiences, but I'd never gone a day without speaking to my parents, sometimes four or five, six, seven times a day. When I lived in Europe and I studied, uh, there were times when I was on the phone with my mom for three hours as she helped me with like a, a recipe when I was cooking dinner for friends and so forth. They were every part of my life, every waking breathing part of my life. I thought about my parents. I talked about my parents. I talked to my parents. And when that disappears and and loss happens, it really changes you. And it's a very, very tricky time in those moments after loss because it shapes you, everything. You sort of freeze. You're like frozen in time. I think of like Harrison Ford in Star Wars when he's stuck in the door, you know, and it's that that famous moment. That's sort of, you're stuck there. I mean, I, I am still very much that 22-year-old frozen in time. I remember vividly every memory leading up to that moment. And then afterwards, I have really hard time having memories. But I remember sitting and watching Titanic with my father. I remember every single little detail leading up to those moments. And for Harry, he was on this world stage and he was 12 and he also has this institution and, uh, you know, a stiff upper lip and not this warmth and not this love that is thrown at him. So he has the person he is today was very much shaped in that moment, in those moments, in those months afterwards, in that feeling of loneliness and despair. And he talks a lot about the belief that his mom actually hadn't died, that that she had just run away uh, to disappear from all the chaos and was going to eventually come back. And there is that. There are those stages of grief, but they're not stages. They don't happen at the same, like, it's not like a 12-step program. You do one and then you do the next. The stages of grief can all happen at the same time, simultaneously, different times. You're making, you're bargaining with God is one of them. Like, like, let me just, like, let me redo this. Let me make sure it doesn't happen. Let's rewind time. You're doing a lot of that and it stays with you. And I really, really relate to him on that. And another really strange thing that I find that I have totally connected him with him, and this sounds really ridiculous, but the first time in my life that I truly felt free from the grief and from my the sort of the baggage that was on me being this girl who lost her parents young or all the stresses that came with that being an adult and living on my own at a very early age as a result. And I know that sounds crazy. Lots of people go off on their own at 18. But for me, it was it was never something I thought of. I didn't have family and didn't think that was going to be my life. But it was not until I landed in Maun in Botswana that I, for in my life, and it was years after, it was probably 10 years after, maybe maybe a bit more after I lost my parents. And it was a dream of mine from early, from a, being a child. It was something my mom and I had talked about, going to Botswana and seeing the lions and the, and the elephants and the everything. I mean, just being out there in, the, in, the, in a different mindset. And so when I finally did it and I finally got myself to Botswana, I just, everything disappeared. It all went away. I felt connected to 
life in a way I never had before. And it was wild. It was not of this world. It could have been the 20th century, the 19th century, the 18th century, the 16th century. It just, other than the fact that you had nice cameras and nice like Land Rovers, it could have been any other time. It's time stood still. There's this real feeling energy and it's sort of kill or be killed. It's survivor mode, survival of the fittest. It's beautiful. It's tragic. It, there's just something so remarkable. And he talks so much about the Akavanga Delta in particular, which is where this desert meets this raging water. And there's something so remarkable about that place. I cannot, I mean, if you guys are listening and you haven't been to Botswana, I cannot tell you enough to do it, to go there. And it's not for little kids, but it is an incredible place that also makes your brain and your DNA in a way. At least it did for me, and it certainly seemed to have done so for Harry. So I have a lot of empathy towards him. I, have a, I can relate. I know the feeling of being in the tent and hearing the sounds of the wildebeest outside and the lions roaring and the, the all of the, the jungle that comes alive or the delta that comes alive at night, the hippos, you know, that kill people just for sport, by the way. Hippos are vegetarians, so they kill like 500 people a year, but they do it just for shits and giggles. There's something so remarkable about it. And it is, you know, people are doing all this hallucinogenic therapy now to deal with things, whether it's ketamine or ayahuasca or whatnot. And I, I like, it might be more expensive, but it's a lot more worth it. Go to fucking Botswana and have yourself a therapy session over there. Listen to me, listen to Prince Harry. It does the body good. But the thing that we go back to on the Harry thing, and I think what everybody's been talking about in America, we, we love this stuff, but even here, people are getting sick of it. I think they're just, it feels a little ostentatious, all of the press, all of the complaining about your privacy, but here we are in England. It feels much different. And I don't think as Americans, we can really understand what the royal family means in England. And even when people are talking about the, you know, even the young generations that are, are questioning the importance of the royal family or whether monarchies in general make sense, it's just part of the structure of Britain. And it's part of, you know, we as Americans are so divided. We don't have any center we, we don't have a center base, a central base. It's either you're this or you're that and extremes and this and that. In the UK, you have that royal family. Like no matter what, it all comes back to that. And yes, it's changed with the queen passing and she was in service to, to the empire, but to her people for so long. And she was the longest serving monarch and people grew very accustomed to that. And now there's a little transition, but it's such a fiber, part of the fiber of society there. And it's, you can be truly badly behaved, but if you don't go around talking about it or moaning about it, then you seem to get out unscathed. I think the biggest scandals were when Prince Andrew did this terrible press interview. That's when everything went wrong for him. And when Diana did that book with Andrew Morton, and now we're here today. So I find it interesting as somebody who loves pop culture, talks about it. I also come from a media and comms perspective. I know a couple of the people by that he mentions by name in the book, um, some of them that he just alludes to on the media and sort of spin doctor side. And it's truly astounding how 
much of the royal family comes down to those two things, PR people, the spin doctors, and the press. And these, every single one of them are defined by those two categories uh, professionally. Media, people who are, are hunting them, you know, he makes that analogy in, in Botswana, but they are being hunted by the press. And the spin doctors in each one of the members of the royal family has their own and they compete against each other. And I thought it was really interesting. He said something like Prince Charles at the time, now King Charles, spin doctors saw an opportunity to turn that story from Prince Charles, the cheating husband who was cold and aloof and had to deal with the fallout of Diana's death and was being criticized for his lack of warmth and so forth. But how do you spin that? You can spin that into being the father of a drug-addled kid. And Harry, Prince Harry is this problem child, doing drugs, partying, doing all this stuff. And Prince Charles has to step in and be this, you know, the father, like so many people are dealing with their kids who have drug and alcohol problems, right? So he can be relatable. And it seems like that's what went on. And you realize how much of the stories around this have all been PR leaks. That's the whole point. This is really the rage against the machine that that Harry has. So I find that quite interesting, um, especially because this is my career. This was what I've chosen to do. And I can't imagine taking a job where I was doing something intentionally to hurt someone else, where I was doing PR for a human and in order to make them look better, we wanted to make somebody look worse. And that's that's not a gig I want to ever be a part of. And uh, it's terrible that that's sort of what's ruling the royal family. So if you haven't read the book, I actually urge you to. It's at, I find it really interesting and entertaining, um, shocking in many ways, like questionable in terms of some of your decisions there, Harry and Meghan. But Certainly, this is a piece of history now. This was a historical moment. It's a historical document. It will be looked upon for generations. Uh, we have no idea what's to come. There are lots of countries, they talk about that on On, so go and listen to that. But there are lots of places that are questioning their relationship with the monarchy. So, you know, is it in peril? It's it certainly, we go through these cycles. This is not the first time they've talked about it, but uh, you had a queen that was very aware of that role. I don't know what the future holds with Prince Charles and or King Charles and Prince William and their awareness of the moment, but we'll just have to see. We are in a moment switching gears to where we have some very prominent pop stars, women, who are using their platforms to get back at their exes in spectacular ways. And it's no coincidence, or maybe it is that it's the exact same time, but we have Miley Cyrus and Shakira, two incredibly talented, successful, famous women very different audiences, maybe some lots of overlap, but Shakira is this Colombian singer, huge, huge, huge in the Spanish speaking world. I mean, huge in America as well, but she has a very big global reach. And Miley Cyrus is a former child star, daughter of a former pop singer, country singer, Billy Ray Cyrus. I guess he was sort of both in the time of achy, breaky heart. But Miley has grown into being a powerhouse singer and pop star and celebrity, if you will. And they both were heartbroken, apparently, 
by their former partners, husbands. Miley's was a well-known actor who was starred in Hunger Games, and they had dated and then broken up and then got back together, got married, and then broke up. And hers is pretty literal, where it's a word-for-word response to a Bruno Mars song, if you remember, like, I wish I got you flowers. And she's basically taking ownership, saying, I can get my own flowers. I can own my own hand. And TikTok has exploded in all of the sort of deep meanings of the song. She doesn't literally come out and say it's her ex-husband, but there's lots of signs, especially because they talk about their house burning down and it's a love song that was a sort of was love and then it wasn't. But there's so many theories on TikTok that she's wearing the suit that he was wearing at the premiere that they appeared together. And when she sort of was acting fun and flirtatious, he told her to behave. And apparently there was some other I don't know if it's the same premiere or another one where he told her that she was always making a scene. She's wearing that suit. Apparently, the rumors, and nobody can tell where this came from, but there is a strong narrative on TikTok that uh, he cheated on her with 14 women. It's very specific. And that the house that they do the video in was the house that he was cheating on the women on. Now, I feel this is perhaps all fiction, But just so you know, there's a bajillion TikToks about it. And they're, you know, hear woman roar and Miley going after him. He also, she also released it on his 33rd birthday. There is a picture of him and his current girlfriend going through the airport like the day after the single dropped. And they do not look overjoyed, which I can imagine, especially just being thrown into the pop culture narrative without your permission is is tricky, even if he's an asshole. Shakira's is very literal. Shakira's, and we put some of the lyrics in in the newsletter as well as the song. And apparently, so Shakira's 10 years older than her husband. She has two kids with him. He's a soccer player. He apparently was having an affair with a younger woman. She's in her, I think she's 22. And the marriage has fallen apart and he's now with this young woman. Shakira's in tax issues with the government, some sort of tax fraud. So this song eviscerates him. But apparently the story goes now, according to TikTok, that she found out that her husband was cheating on her because of some strawberry jam. And that was a jam jar in the refrigerator that she knows he hates. He hates jam. Nobody in the family eats jam. And when she came back from traveling, she went to the fridge and the jam jar was like half eaten. So (laughs) for whatever reason, TikTok has decided this is a this is a true story, but she goes after him. She also says something like she's worth two 22 year olds. Like it's unbelievable. And I have to say, I kind of like her revenge song more. I think it's more in unique and it's more artistic and individual. Miley's is a nice little banger, but I don't think it's original. I think it's like word for word, another person's song. But you know, these women are flying high right now with the response. People like a little drama. We like a little insight to heartbreak. I heard somebody say it. I guess I saw another TikTok, but people can relate. People can relate to this. Maybe can't relate to Prince Harry and what he's gone through as much, but people can relate to Shakira and Miley. At least women can. You know, hell hath no fury, my lord. So that is it. I don't really have much else to say other than I need to get myself some more coffee, stat, and 
get my bearings being back in Los Angeles. I will do my Mary makeout mute because I feel like we're all so accustomed to that now, if, if you will. I would make out 1000% with Shakira. I just, I feel like that girl's wild. Those hips don't lie. I love her. I actually hung out with a few people that she was friends with years and years ago in the Bahamas. And I'll never forget. They were like, she's just the greatest. She's wild. She's fun. She's, she's energized. She's just this magical woman. So I would make out with Shakira. I would marry basically all of the carbs that I consumed <laughs> in in Munich and London. Guys, I am drinking a green juice right now. I am I am committed to only having greens for the next few days, if not maybe for the rest of my life. But the amount of Wiener schnitzel and potatoes and bread and a shout out to my girls, Lara, over at Pivot Podcast, who really I, thank you so much for giving me permission to be that girl. And shout outs to Camilla and Caroline in London for taking me out on the town in London and coming with me to the Pivot Live podcast, but also watching me consume like 3000 calories a day. So I would marry, I would marry all of those carbs and then we would have like a really tricky life together and I would yell at them and the carbs would yell at me. And isn't that what marriage is all about? And then I would mute. I know I just spent 25 minutes talking about it, but I think I'm done now with Prince Harry. I'm muting the rest of it. Like after tomorrow, my commitment is to definitely not put this much time or energy into the royal family. I don't care anymore. I really don't want it. I'm done with it. Like it's, it was an addiction and I'm over it. I'm, I want to, I'd rather refocus on my Harry Styles who we haven't seen for a little while, but I was walking through the Heath the other day in London with my friend Grace Campbell and her beautiful new puppy, Eddie. And I've, I've seen so many paparazzi photos of, of Harry Styles in uh, the Heath, which is this beautiful part of London. And I was like, maybe, maybe he'll pop up in the mud. I was very excited. But I am muting Harry and the royal family. That's what I would like to do. And so that is it. I will see you guys next Thursday. Have a beautiful week. Read my newsletter on Monday. Listen to On with Kara Swisher. And find me on Twitter, Instagram at Brooke, and let me know what you think. That's a love. Pop culture Monday.